You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to The Making of a Marketer, the podcast that takes you around the world of marketing one topic at a time. Hosted by digital marketing consultants Jess Nickerson and Andy Pondillo. We welcome you to join the conversation. Stream us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. Now here are your hosts, Jess and Andy. We are back once again on the making of a marketer, a great Friday here with us. It's Andy Pondillo and a special co-host today, Chris Malin. Um, as you know, uh, Jess Nickerson, our wonderful co-host, is still on maternity leave right now, should be back in a few weeks. And we know, Jess, you're out there listening. We're excited to have you back. We know you're doing well. And again, if you're just catching up, a very healthy baby, Georgia, her second of two daughters. So we're extremely excited for her and excited to keep the momentum going this week on the making of a marketer. So we, of course, are now part of the Marketing Podcast Network. So if you're hearing some ads before you hear our voice, it's you know, helping us fund the podcast, do some more fun things, giving us access to some special guests and real excited to really get this thing going and continue our first season of success on the program. With that, uh, you might remember Chris, if you're watching live, uh, Chris was with us a few weeks ago uh, talking about employment marketing. And it was one of our, I would say, most well-received episodes. I absolutely learned a ton from a different world of marketing that I may have not dabbled in quite as much before. Uh, Chris comes from a background of working for some of the largest tech companies you may have heard of previously with Google, eBay, Apple, to name a few. And Chris, you just bring a, a wealth of knowledge to the table. So today, we're really happy to have you here to kind of expand on some of the things we talked about last time, but also just see where this adventure takes us on this Friday. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here today. Um, I had such a great time chatting with both you and Jess. Um, you really pushed me to do some hard thinking, which I appreciate. And every chance I have to sit down with smart people and have a great conversation makes me a little bit smarter. So I really appreciate the chance to be back. Very appreciated, Chris. And what I'm impressed with with you right now is you just had some beach days. I've heard you don't you don't look very sunburned, so you made it through. That's the key. So uh, my fiance and I we're going to do our beach vacation in a couple of weeks to the Jersey Shore. We are talking about it right now. It's Operation Don't Come Back Looking Like a Lobster. So tell <laughs> us about your your beach excursion you had, real quick. Well, it was great. I uh, I grew up in South Florida, so both my wife and I did. So it was really nice. Even though we live in Northern California, where there's plenty of beach around, it's a lot colder than the beach where we grew up right next to um, the Gulf Stream. So it was great to just get back out on the sand. I also grew up during an era when you know SPF 2 was considered pretty extreme. Um, and the one thing I've learned from dermatologists over the years is keep the hat and sunscreen going. So um, I've learned to live with my northern, uh, with the northern look here on my skin, but uh, um, it means I can get out and spend a lot more time at the beach. The beach is always good, you know, and that is exactly right. I haven't, I haven't explored California enough, but um, I know one thing about northern California. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, Chris. It doesn't have the sprawling like sand beaches like southern California does. It's more small beaches, rocks, cold water, water, because you don't get as much heat over there. So it's not, 
what you think about, I guess, in LA, where everybody's just sprawled out on the beach, pumping iron and doing all the good stuff out there. Yeah, it's strikingly beautiful, but it's definitely a different kind of beauty. Uh, and I got to say, you know, we're in a we're in a marketing podcast, so I I think it's worth acknowledging um, that there are certainly days when I think about the weather here. Um, I worked with a company in Toronto, based in Toronto, and um, I'd be the one person bundled up on Zoom calls every day. And they said, hey, I thought you were in California. And I realized that it's possible California has better marketing than actual weather sometimes. So it's nice to be here and think about how we can carry those lessons forward. I love, I mean, I'm one of those, Chris, like, I've never lived West Coast, I've never lived in California, but I will say every time I go there, it leaves a mark on me. I'm like, always really excited, even if it's just a work trip. I went to San Francisco last November, it was, I believe it was November. Um, But either way, I was there for a day and a half, and I was excited for that. I literally just wanted to go walk around downtown, walk around the bay, like, just get out. That, That weather is just... It's got its own aura about it, but you're right. The marketing uh, for California is as strong as it gets. But speaking of marketing, this podcast is brought to you by a special sponsor again this week, uh, Active Campaign. So this episode brought to you by Active Campaign. It is a CRM tool for small businesses. We're really happy to be working with them. And I know coming from the small business world, when you're trying to do your social media posts, you're trying to do emails, you're trying to manage budgets, you are trying to make sure you're profitable. Uh, There's a lot going on and you want to be able to automate some of what you're doing. You also want to be smart about what you're doing with a CRM tool. Active Campaign is built for those small business owners that are trying to do everything at once. And I know I've been there. I haven't been a small business owner, but I've been in that hat where, um, or that position where I've had to work in a lot of different hats. So what we're trying to offer you for a limited of time, um, Active Campaign is offering our listeners a chance to double your contacts for free when you sign up at activecampaign.com slash activate. What does this mean? It means that your email list, if you upload a list in Active Campaign, it has 10,000 contacts. You only need to pay for 5,000 or you can pay for the 1,000 and get an extra 1,000 totally free. What is Active Campaign CRM? Active Campaign CRM is an incredible marketing automation email marketing and CRM platform to grow those small businesses. It's currently helping over 185,000 businesses grow by scaling and personalizing customer experience. So again, talking about automating email, getting leads into your CRM, scoring them, uh, doing your thing with them on the sales side that I try to pretend that I kind of understand and I'm learning better as we go. Um, Active CRM, 10,000 five-star reviews on G2, happy users. Again, if you're looking to dive into a CRM that is specialized for your type of small business, get your email marketing, get your sales flow, get your pipeline, add that automation touch that you might be looking for, activecampaign.com slash activate today and get that 50% off while it lasts. So again, happy to help and happy to be part of the Marketing Podcast Network where we have this outreach. And Chris, CRMs, like we're not going to go down this rabbit hole, but there's been so many times where I've been asked working social media, Andy, what is your experience with CRMs? And my experience has been watching people do it on the side and pretending that I know what they're doing. It's uh, it's actually a really cool thing um, that Active Campaign is doing to to make this offer right now through through the network. It's um, what it gives people an opportunity to do. It allows you to think about what you want to drive, what intentionally you want to do, what reality you want to bring forth with your audience, with your potential sales leads, with your current customer base, how you want to cultivate, nurture them. It puts you in a position to actually step back think that through up front. And then the offer they're giving that they have going right now of doubling your reach means you're doubling your ROI, right? Mm-hmm. You're doubling 
your return on advertising spend, depending on how you think about it. So that combination of thinking very carefully and intentionally about what you want to make true, and then having the chance to do that at a double your standard ROI is really a great way to let anyone begin to experiment with this kind of tool and find out how it can be both effective and efficient for them. And what I think too, when we talk about small business owners, they have to do so much themselves. We've had a number of guests on this platform talk about when they started their startup, they were the marketing director, they were the sales director, they're doing all these things. It's really very difficult to do that without some sort of automation. But the other part, I think that will really lend an advantage to these small business owners using active campaign is that they can learn the CRM right now from the inside out. And once their company does scale, they may not be utilizing it as much, but they can understand everything from A to Z. And you can start making strong business decisions within what you're seeing in the CRM. You could be unlike Andy Pondello, who got into marketing at a deep level and then started crash coursing uh, CRMs later on. Uh, but I think especially in this business-to-business world where leads, um, emails, nurturing is such an important tool, learning it at this level from being the business owner, that helps you so much understanding really the cues that you need to see going forward. Yeah, it's um, it's also going to make you, you know, one of the scariest things as a, as a business owner is making early hires, right? How do you know you're hiring the right people for the right roles? By having the chance to use a tool like this and get underneath it a little bit, you will learn enough to understand who you need to hire, how you need to build your own marketing team when you start building them. So there's, it, I, I couldn't agree with you more. There's so many layers of benefits to um, testing a tool like this that goes beyond just the near-term marketing and sales benefit, but really into the business growth opportunities. Definitely. And that really leads us into our discussion today, Chris. And our big focus last time we talked was really on the employment branding sector. So I want to start there. I mean, that, you know, if you haven't seen Chris, just, you know, look your name up on YouTube, some impressive work you've done on this subject and some incredible learnings that you can learn from Chris Malin beyond this podcast and going forward when it comes to employment-based marketing. But I want to hone in on really the right now. So we look at the right now in 2023. You don't have to go on LinkedIn or read the news you know, every day. I think you know what's happened. There's been thousands and thousands of layoffs in big tech. There's a lot of people in the agency levels, the startup levels. There's a lot of people transitioning right now. I would say the healthy thing about the market it's not good to see this many people out of work, but I think the healthy thing is there's still a lot of digital jobs out there. So it's like one in out one door in the next. So we see just a lot of change happening. With that, we do see a lot of these larger companies now starting to restructure going into the end of the year of 2024 to where they did the 20,000 person layoff, but now they're hiring again. So Chris, I want to dig into your brain from employment marketing. If I'm one of these big companies that just went through this, and now I'm trying to market ourselves to now attract new hires, where do we begin in terms of a technique? Is this a damage control effort? Is this a PR effort? Is this just go on as we have been type of effort to try to get the, that talent back in the door? Yeah, it's a great question. And as I've been thinking about this, I, it really, it really falls to in, in my mind. It falls into kind of three big categories, right? One is it, those categories are image, right? How are you showing up these days? What do people believe about you? What do they think about you now? The second is experience. What's the experience they're having? And I think Brooke talked about that a little bit in the last episode of the podcast. Um, but experience that candidates actually have going through the process is going to be critical. So image experience, and then the third piece is execution, where a company does feel like it needs to do more outreach, more channel management, more things to generate leads for specific niche roles or hard to hire roles. How do they begin to think about execution? So if it's if it's worth it, I can dive into each one of those maybe in order. Yes, I'd say let's take a deep dive into this because I'm fascinated by it. I just, I see... So much of what's happened, I definitely tried to look and advise, you know, some of our clients and customers on what to do going forward. I just feel like I try to think of 
marketing through such a human lens. And when I see the jobs posting up at these companies, I try to think along with the user. I, I mean, I can't pretend to be in everybody's head. Everybody's going to see and perceive things a little bit differently. But I have to think that's on people's mind when they see a, you know, a company advertising it that just let go 25% of its staff. Now they're hiring again. You know, well, what is the what's the play here? So I'm curious on what that human side is and, and what you would think about doing. Yeah, in my mind, um, like it, in my mind, where we are right now is at an interesting inflection point in perception um, by by audiences. Right over the last few years, what have we all heard? We've all heard about the importance of mission. That people are very, very um, people potential employees are very particular about going to mission driven firms. So a lot of companies have invested in talking about their mission, in showing that mission. Um, more clearly to the world. And that's been a wonderful move because it's allowed them to be more intentional and it's caused them to be more intentional about what they stand for in the world. The challenge is once you cut a large number of people, suddenly your audience doesn't necessarily believe you're as mission focused as you said you were, right? So a lot of the great talk companies have been doing is now perhaps damaged. It now actually raises more question than it did answer previously. So one of the things I'd think about in that image category, right? The first thing I talked about, which a lot of people would call brand, but I, I, I think let's just be specific. This is the image you're conveying to the world. Let's understand again that people are in a different place. There's a combination of desperation for some folks, great, really highly talented folks who are looking for jobs. And also there's probably a certain level of suspicion or skepticism about what the companies really say. So on an image side, you know, the biggest advice I would give to an executive who's thinking about how do you talk to people differently and how do you show up differently is you need to show up more authentically than ever before. What that means is the mission statements are great, but you have to show, you can't just tell. That might mean stripping back a lot of the things you said before. If you said we have commitments to A, B, and C, but you don't have compelling you don't have compelling examples of B and C, then just focus on A for now. It's okay to be great at one thing because where you can show up authentically, that's going to build trust again. And trust is what really matters. I like to, to, Chris, really look at this from a PR lens. So a couple jobs ago, I handled a lot more PR. I wasn't a PR specialist by any means, but I worked a lot more directly with that side. So the statements that the CEO wrote, we posted on social media, the VP, the spokespeople for the companies. And PR, you tend to be very controlled. You don't want to give up too much. You want to give up enough to answer question. You want to be very controlled. So we've seen this handled a lot of different ways. Um, I kind of feel like what you're talking about here, trust and mission statements, uh, how they go hand in hand. I also feel like the executive leadership and how they've handled this really kind of sets the dominoes in motion. One I would like to talk about was with Meta and Mark Zuckerberg. If you look at his statements during the waves of the layoffs they've had, he actually really fell on the sword and said that this was on him. This was on his mismanagement and took, you know, what he felt was his ownership of it, where I don't feel like that's the norm. I think a lot of the other companies have gone back to maybe previous mission statements, put out the PR kind of bullet point reads. Do you have any take on that? Do you, do you think what the executive leaders kind of plays a role in this and how you would do your employment branding after that? Because I almost feel like, at least my opinion, let me know if I'm wrong by saying this, was Zuckerberg falling on the sword the way he did? It almost can bury that more and let them move forward as a company with what their mission is now, just by bearing it and saying it was a mistake versus company B that said, we tried our hardest and this was, you know, a resolution of the, the macro um, economics. We wish everybody the best. You know, we hope this won't happen again. Yeah, I, look, I think you bring up an, a fantastic point because what executives do creates what you get to talk about later, right? And I think you're 100% right about the need for executives to own 
the decisions that led to where they are, because it does diffuse any complaints later, right? Because what's going to happen on Glassdoor and other websites like that after people get cut, there are going to be pros and cons of the company listed. And some people are going to be very authentic and open and honest and positive, but disappointed. And there's going to be a large number of folks who aren't. And when an executive can come out and bravely and um, like, I, th I think bravely, authentically and vulnerably say, look, these were mistakes that we made. We didn't, you know, because you can always say the macro environment changed, but the job of a senior executive is, is to understand how the macro environment is going to change, right? That's, that's part of the job description. And so when executives can take that away, then when people do um, post the negative comments that could affect the brand, the answer out in the world is, yeah, of course, they already admitted to that. Now we're moving forward which is very different from a company that's that's doubling down on mistakes. So let's take it to your role working in employment, Chris. So let's just say yeah. hypothetically, you're wearing that hat right now and you have to overcome this. You have to talk about all the things the company's doing and moving into 2024. Do you, in your messaging, start to change the way that you're you're doing things do you feel like almost if there's somewhat of an uncertainty uncertainty period right now if there'll be any more of this or not do you almost pull back a little bit on some of the more positive messaging if you will and it's a great place to work and things like that and maybe try to change it a little bit in the way you're messaging things out to to just prospective users and the way they might be thinking yeah i think right now where I would lean in to messaging is about impact of a role, right? Because what are people trying to understand? They're trying to understand, do I trust that this job I'm interviewing for is going to matter? It's still going to exist. It'll have some stability and the company has a reason to care about it. So there's not a high likelihood that I'm going to get cut in six months. Most of those questions can be answered by helping somebody understand this role you're interviewing for is really important. It really matters to the future of, of the company post layoff, post restructuring, and you're going to get to make a difference in it. So any of the storytelling a company can do, it's almost a chance to get more granular than ever before, right? And when you do speak about your mission, it should be in terms of how the work people do day to day is connected to that mission, not just in broad terms. This is a chance to get much more granular which will allow people to see themselves in the role and see why that role might still exist a year from now. And I think in this through a social media lens, the way I always think about it is, how are you showcasing this in video? How are you showcasing this in your writing? You know, the, the mission-driven statements. And Chris, you spoke so eloquently about this in our last episode is that brand as a whole, whether you're B2C, B2B, you have a bunch of divisions under you, including employment uh, marketing, it actually, that mission and big brand should carry over to each. There should be some consistency that that exists within them. The ask and CTA could obviously be a lot different, but there needs to be some sort of consistency that runs across them. So I think about this through a social media lens and you know, I'm building my calendar out. I have 25 posts to do. Where am I going to put this in? I would think about, you know, here's our mission statement. How do I write this in like a B2C, B2B employment marketing way? How do I put this in video? How do I kind of finesse it a little bit out there? Put the mission out there in a way that's like natural and easy to read. And maybe what I used to do, and we did this when I worked, this was when I worked at Space Center Houston is we would have times where we really dialed up, buy tickets, come visit us. And there were moments we had to dial back just because maybe things that were happening um, at the center, there was things closed, there was bad weather, there was PR things happening, whatever it may be. I feel like this is, in my opinion, a dial back time right now in terms of the hard asks and dial up the mission, as you're saying, Chris, but think about all the different ways you can put that out there. These large companies, they typically have a lot of group initiatives, whether it's, you know, Fridays with the team going out and doing um, some sort of charity work, 
um, some sort of, you know, meeting where somebody was awarded some very high recognition, like things like that. I'm thinking about building that up and how can I do an employment version of that at least once per week in my post calendar and get ahead of it with the content that we could potentially have. Yeah, I, I think you're I think you're completely right on that, right? This is the time where you think about storytelling differently. This is a time where your call to action might not be look at a job or come, you know, the call to action may be just understand us a little better, right? It might be the intent behind some of the storytelling may be to just surface the humanity behind the business decisions, right? The Definitely. people behind the products. Definitely. And it's interesting, would you bring up, you know, I said there were three things as image experience and, and execution. And the, we've kind of talked execution a little bit about how you, how, you know, how you'd talk and what you'd actually start putting in your planning. But this also, your, your mention of a dial it back time really gets into experience very clearly, right? What are the biggest complaints? If you go around the web right now, if you, you just scan, scan any of the review sites, you go to Reddit, you hear people, what are they complaining about? Well, I don't hear back. Everything's a black hole. It's totally impersonal. The process I'm ghosted, right? At, in the most extreme. And a lot of this, you know, companies, talent acquisition teams are stretched thin because they're the first ones to get cut, right? Once a company realizes they don't need to hire as much, the first folks they let go are the talent acquisition folks. So it's a thinly stretched team that that almost by necessity is going to have, is going to create difficult experiences for a lot of candidates, a lot of people who are trying to get in. And there are some basic things that you can do to fix some of those challenges upstream, right? Like I, most folks will just say, well, TA should, you know, the TA team should call people back more or the company should build an automated email system to tell people what their status is. Yeah, all of that would be great, right? Our expectations are set by Amazon, right? And how quickly we get a status update on when something's delivered and all of that. So everyone coming in has these very high expectations. One way to fix a lot of that is think about how you move your fixes upstream, right? One of the problems a lot of companies have is they're taking a long time to hire. And yet, one thing I've seen consistently is companies don't post a job, especially in an environment like this, until they've already really needed somebody enroll for like three months, right? So they're already behind. And then taking a long time to hire begins to bring a lot of questions into mind, into people's minds, into candidates' minds, again, about what did I just talk about, about how important this role actually is, and will it really matter over time, and is this company serious? So one thing they can do is fix the experience in terms of speed to hire. Once somebody's in the process, decide that you're going to move and get it done. Second, if you can't as a company make that decision, take the job off your website, pull it down, I've done tests in the past where we experimented and saw that the reason people don't take these things down is they're afraid they're going to miss the perfect applicant, right? They're going to miss somebody. They're not going to get enough application volume. I've done tests in the past where we pulled jobs down, left them down for a month, and then put them back up. And what we had in the end, the result was we had the same total amount of applicants that we would have had if we just left it up. So we didn't actually lose anything ultimately, but we had the chance to just let the job go dark for a little bit, allow us to actually process everyone and have a better experience for the people who went through the process. So I had an idea on this a while back, Chris, and I've never executed it. So I don't have any um, case study information to say if this would work or not, but this would happen a lot. You know, a company is just hiring a lot of different jobs. Like you're saying, they're almost overwhelmed by how they're trying to fill these. What I've suggested is using LinkedIn's tools to where you could boost a, a hiring post and you could get it out to a lot more people really fast. And what I would do is take your HR hiring team and see what is their capacity right now. Ask them how many jobs they think they can hire within the next two weeks. And then most people will give you an ambitious answer. So take whatever they tell you, 
subtract it by about 20% and say, we're going to go for this in the next two weeks. These are our posts that we're trying to hire for. We boost those out and the reach goes up four or five times, if not more. We're going to get a lot of applicants a lot quicker by doing that because you're at the top of the search. You get out there and in the tech world, you're going to find qualified candidates. There's tons out there at this point, 2023. Once you hire them within this two-week span, we're going to go from posting job to hire in two weeks. We now close the job, and then the next two weeks, we flight in another series of jobs. So we're flighting them, almost like you do paid ads. Um, sometimes, you know, you keep the campaigns on, so this is a hiring campaign, if you will, but you're flighting the content that goes in and out of it, and you almost run it as a content strategy, but I feel like at that point, we monotask the job we're doing, and in return, as an employment brand, we're building confidence with the people that we're trying to hire, we're there, we're present during these interviews, we're talking about mission, and we're coming in, it feels like there's a strategy in play for hiring versus kind of this, you know, everybody kind of running around trying to figure out how we're going to fill roles. I think it's a great, I think it's a great idea. It's a great approach. The thing it requires and I think this is something that's required in the current environment, no matter what, is strong executive leadership. It requires vice president level executives to be very aligned on what are the real spots we're actually hiring for, right? What do we really have uh, commitment from finance that we can hire for? What do we really intend to get done quickly? And then agreement on what order we can move in. Right. And it's hard. It's hard to herd those cats the uh, at, at the VP level of large organizations. They are they are very motivated to get their work done. Most of them have good vision for how to partner across the organization. But at the end of the day, they probably got promoted to VP because they knew how to get their functional work done, not because they were great at partnering across the organization. And so that partnership is going to be the piece, I think, that really unlocks the ability to do that quickly. And even, Matt, you know, if a, if a direct, if a VP of talent acquisition can just partner with one, one VP in a functional, in, in a functional area of the business to prioritize maybe at the director level, I think you could have an amazing pilot. And that's where, you know, when we talk about employees that work at companies and you're trying to get a plan, whether it's this plan or any other plan you're doing, when I was a supervisor, I could be different in this. I know not all of us are exactly the same. When I was a supervisor, if my employees came to me with a plan and a big idea, and I would always listen to it because I never want to discourage that. But we know big ideas. You take 10 of them. You know, you're lucky if you get three of them that meet the finish line, two of them that meet the finish line. So, you know, if this is something that is in your world and you have a big idea, this is when I just say you have to, you know, obviously educate on what may work, take your philosophy and put it to the test and present it. You know, I think that VPs, a lot of times they're not going to just ask for you to present ideas on how to structure things. You have to be a little aggressive and just going for it. And you also have to be willing to fail in this marketing world. If you're not willing to fail, it becomes a very um, daunting world. And, you know, Chris, I want to get to our next subjects. I think that really kind of facilitates kind of a good segue for us is let's just talk about, you know, I guess it's the name we all give it now, the, the whole big tech world as a whole. So you have a vast experience working um, across different large companies in this world. I'm curious, just, you know, maybe like your one minute, two minute rundown, tell us how you got into it kind of how you've seen this thing shift and, you know, your just thoughts on this world overall and what you've seen over the last several years. Yeah, it's been, um, it's been an interesting journey for me and it's been admittedly a nonlinear journey. Uh, there are a lot of people I know who have some tremendous strength and, and just get right into a particular tech firm um, in a particular function and stay in that function, climb the ladder and they do great um, I've been somebody who's chased interesting projects and interesting opportunities, and those have always happened for me in the tech space because there's a lot of people trying to do something new and different. Um, 
So a couple of things that have helped me along the way to get into this space and and sort of chase the journey was was um you know one of it was one of the big ones was just saying yes to opportunities as they came up right like i was a um i i was somebody i came from a background i was a public defender then i went to business school then i worked at apple in developer relations that doesn't sound like it makes a lot of sense it's not a standard resume progression but there were things I did along the way that I knew why I was doing them, right? I had the opportunity to work with a museum of art and help build out a young professionals organization. That young, And I knew why we were doing it, right? That young professionals organization, what we wanted to do was build a relationship between people in the community and the museum itself, not just transactions or come out to a party. We certainly threw some good ones, but really to connect people with the museum, with one another, and with the art. And in so doing, we weren't transactional. We were relationship focused. Now, I had that conversation in my first interview when I sat down to talk um, with the team at Apple. And that was the part of the interview that mattered to them because the developer relations organization was all about building relationships, not just transactions. And that's where I ended up working. So, you know, one thing I would share with people is do things in your life that bring you that that bring that bring you to life a little bit right that bring you some joy that can make you enthusiastic about what you're doing whether you do that in the physical world or the digital world and understand why you're doing it like what the value of it is for for your partners for yourself and i found that those conversations and that understanding has helped me get into um, you know, uh, allowed me to put my foot on the first step of a lot of very interesting journeys that I never would have otherwise. A thousand percent, Chris. And, you know, I shared this story a handful of times on this podcast, I think, because I think it's important to keep resharing. I think it's important to hear a, a lot of different perspectives, um, as well as to how people have grown into marketing, in the tech, into these different places. But my story, I always say that kind of like re-established my career was following a layoff myself, as we talk about it today. And, you know, I'm late 20s, I'm a single dude, um, but, uh, I'm, you know, living unemployed. I have a few more months because if I don't get this career going soon with a new job, I'm going to be living back with my parents. Like, this is late 20s, Chris. Like, this is like, when you look at people and how they view and whatnot, if you hit it right, if if you're doing things right in your career, like I'm looked at at this point as Andy the dreamer, he made it a little bit in the marketing, but he didn't get to where he wanted to go. Is this it? And, you know, of course not. Like late 20s, you got decades left of experience. Like there's ebbs and flows in your career. And it was at that point I started looking for jobs, only accepting jobs and taking jobs that had importance of mission to me and jobs I wanted to do because I enjoyed it. I stopped caring about the salary. I stopped caring about the title. I stopped caring about all of that stuff. Of course, I wanted to see positive career trajectory and growth. But, you know, I love the social media industry, no matter how many people said that you know, hey, Andy, it's a little bit of an interesting play to go into that, you know, 2010s, we didn't know what it was going to be, you know, a lot of us were just dreaming and seeing what could happen. So I just started taking jobs and, and doing the things I loved. And when I started doing that, um, each of these jobs actually led me to LinkedIn, which has, you know, been the, probably the the perfect role for me in the way that I've been utilized and and been in really seen as someone that's a leader in the digital space, consulting other clients, like working with their mission, crafting, copying, creative. And that's what I love to do. Like I'll be the first person to tell you. Sure, I can go on a platform and get you efficient costs and run the platform, but I want to do things that are less transactional and I want to have that experience where we're creating some good in the industry. So I think it's important what you're saying there. I like to give my example because it took me getting to there to get my career in the right trajectory. Things are good now. You know, we have our house, I got a fiance, we're, we're doing some fun trips. We're going to have our wedding in a year. 
But I think there's just a lot of people out there when they're looking at, let's say, big tech, for instance, they feel like it's miles and miles away. And maybe it will take a little bit to get there. But I think doing things that you love to do, it has to be the North Star for people in marketing, especially during the times we're in right now. If you start chasing these other North Stars, I think you can end up chasing a lot of things that aren't rewarding to you in the marketing world. Yeah, I totally agree. And it sounds like as I hear you tell that story, what's really interesting to me is you talk about the things you wanted to do, skills you wanted to build, things like that. But what I really hear, if I if I you know pay attention to what what's between what you're saying, is you were focused in some ways on the kind of person you wanted to be, who you wanted to be, how you wanted to show up. You were experimenting with focusing on skills and interesting problems to solve. Now it's possible for people to go, look, I want to be vice president of marketing, and I'm just going to draw a path to that. And that's great. But for most of us, the journey, it, it's more about the journey than the destination, right? Because most of our time is spent on the journey. And one of the things that I think people get down about a lot is they start judging each job or each step on the journey by whether it got them to the destination or not. Whatever, However they define that, whether that's more money, whether that's prestige, whether that's job at a, at a certain company. But it's the wrong way to think. If you judge each step by whether it got you to your destination, only one step is ever a success. And that's the last step that gets you there. Every other step you would consider a failure and you're gonna live in a constant state of stress and failure. It's much more important to understand that each journey is taking you somewhere that will lead you there and value each one of those spots on the way in those terms, on your terms, rather than on some externality. I don't know if that's helpful, but it's a way I've tried to think about it. No, and I think about that too. Like, you know, there's VPs of marketing out there that are really happy and this was their journey and they love their job. There's also another side of VPs out there that feel like they were part of the machine is what we like to call it. And the, the machine got them there, but they're still unhappy there because the type of work they're doing is unfulfilling, even with the title. So what I hear a lot, you know, I've never worn a VP hat. So I can't speak for all VPs. I can only speak from what I've heard. I've heard people to get to the spot and they're there. And it's almost like that was it. Like you did the big thing and now you're almost like unfulfilled and don't know what to do next because there's no other thing to chase, but you're also have lost the mission of what you wanted to do and the skills and things that you were trying to achieve. You know, and then the other conversation always comes up, you know, in tech and trying to get to a better place with your career is the 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 pay transparency or pay discrepancies across tech is can be very wide. I mean, you're entering out of college, you know, it's it's going to be tough. Like it typically is very tough. You make it to the top, you know, you're you know, hanging out with Zuckerberg and, and partying in Malibu. Like, I mean, there's just like a huge discrepancy, but there's a lot of places in between that where I feel like people can live a very healthy life, a very successful life and do the things they want to do and just see where it takes them. So I think angling that North Star is the most important thing and in, in trying to do work that is value to you. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. The um, one thing, just to loop back on something that that you sort of talked about or that we hinted at, is you know questions about how do, how do you get these kinds of roles, and I was thinking about something. It brought to mind something that Brooke had talked about again in the last in in the last episode of the podcast. She talked about the importance of knowing your value proposition, right? As a candidate, how do you you know make sure you're clear on what that is, and uh, um. You know, one thing that that made me think about was how do we help people define that value proposition, especially somebody early in their career, right? And um, it's important to recognize, just to provide just a moment of advice maybe for candidates who are hunting, it's important to recognize that companies are generally going to be looking for two things, right? First, they have a problem to solve right now. So you got to be able to demonstrate you can solve that problem. Um, and second, especially at the big tech firms, they're looking for long-term ability. They're looking for this idea that you'll solve their problems right now quickly, effectively, and you'll do them in a way that actually sets up new opportunities later, right? It's not just about, hey, I got the job done. That's terrific. 
That's, but that's cost of entry. The thing that really makes you stand out is I got the job done and it was done in a way that opened up a new opportunity. So where those stories pop out in your past, whether that could just be, if you're a student just graduating, that could be a story about how you worked on a club or something you did in a volunteer organization or even a summer job. Or it could be something more meaningful along your career. Um, another quick note on on value prop is, you know, something that I struggled with is I've had to compete with specialists. I told you I I have a sort of a nonlinear path. So I my path is that of a generalist where I've tried lots of things and then developed special unique specialties along the way. But I've had to go into interviews going, you know, if they want a specialist, I'm not that guy. Uh, and being able to convey a value proposition in that, those moments is really critical, right? If you're a specialist, ground your story in that specialty, but know that you're going to need to show moments of breadth because that's how you show the long-term the long-term piece. If you're a generalist, anchor in the skill or function where you've at least where you've spent most of your time and then position against the, the limitations of specialization. Right. I've had plenty of conversations in interviews where I could, you know, talk to the talk to the hiring manager about, look, if you want a narrow specialist, I'm not the right one to hire. And that's OK. I'll find you somebody who's great. But the risk of hiring a narrow specialist, in my experience, is they don't give you that breadth. And that's what I can offer you. Now, thinking as a marketer you're probably already translating in your head as a marketer, right? You're like, Chris, you're not, now you're not really selling a category. You're not really selling a product of yourself anymore. You're selling a category of generalist. Mm -hmm. And once you start selling a category, you can define yourself as the leader in the category. Yeah. So like this is value proposition as a marketer, as a marketing candidate, but really thinking about how you use strategic marketing skills to actually position you better along the way. And that's why I think every marketer or um, every person that's a candidate should learn a base level of marketing because you start to learn these tactics and marketing, you know, if you're a Star Wars fan, it's really is a Jedi mind trick. A lot of what we're talking about, whether it's employment, a consumer, B2B, you're working with humans. And that's the biggest thing. No matter what you're doing, you're working with humans and the X's and O's are good. But you have to combine that with storytelling in some regard. You know, I think every experience to what Chris is saying is very important. Think about part-time jobs you do. You know, one thing that I've done for a long time, this was my college job and I still do it on the side is I do officiating. So I do um, umpiring up to high school level. I've just done it forever. I love being on the baseball field. It's great exercise. But you come into these, you know, they would be interviews usually for agencies. So one of the lead questions that always comes up is how do you deal with conflict? How do you deal with VP of marketing that says Facebook doesn't work? How are you going to combat that as a social media manager? They're going to look for that answer and they're going to look for your personality about how you're going to come up with this and what your experience is. They're not going to look for X and O's on this. They're looking for more of that. A lot of times I talk about my experience umpiring. So I've been doing this since I was uh, 19. And, you know, when you start getting cussed out at a 12 year old baseball game because they think you made the right call, you learn how to do problem. Um, what's the right word, conflict resolution really, really well. You know how to defend your position, but also not turn it into an explosion on the field because then that doesn't help anybody. You don't, you know, somebody's being angry at you, you don't match back with the same anger level. You use solution-based, uh, you know, resolution tactics. So that was something I used a lot. And I think that, you know, we talk about ways to use your experience. I think everybody has something they can go to, but that was just one of mine. But Chris, I want to, we just have a little bit of time left. There is one more section of things I want to talk about. It's actually in a completely different world, but I couldn't have you here and not ask you this because we've seen the saturation point, I guess you could say on social media right now, or just digital in general. There's so many just channels, placements, ways to market. There's so many conferences you go to where this is the right way. No, this is the right way. 
Uh, this is the perfect way. These are the bells and whistles. And I feel like there's a lot of marketers and a lot of people in upper management. They're looking for this like perfect book that's out there. And I feel like the more channels we run, it's the more time that we put in. And I feel like we're getting further away from the book, in my opinion. Like, I, I, I don't know if there ever was a book. But I think when the book was TV, billboards, newspaper, radio, et cetera, I think the book was a lot easier to read than it is now. So, you know, if you're in one of these companies and you're trying to do the whole omni-channel thing, what are you thinking right now? What are the channels, the 2023 to 2024, that you're thinking about that are right for you? And how are you mixing those, engaging those appropriately? Yeah, um, I... So what I've seen in 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 companies big and small is they'll they'll build out a marketing organization that is built to manage and operate at a channel level, right? So there's going to be a social media team that's great. There's going to be a paid digital team that's great. And even though there's paid digital on social, those teams end up being separate and they start optimizing and tuning for slightly different things. And all of the optimization begin, and then maybe there's going to be a, a team that specializes in TV buys or broadcast media buys, right? There could be an out-of-home team. And it, there's good reason because there's specialized knowledge that allows you to be efficient in those channels, right? It allows you to be a really efficient spender in those channels and allows you to tune your ROI at a channel level. The challenge is... Once you set up organizations like that, you are almost by necessity going to move towards a focus on efficiency rather than effectiveness, right? Now, effectiveness is lined in there, right? Efficiency is return on investment and return, you know, you got to get the return in order to have efficiency. You also have to have a low spend. The tuning on spend seems to be what dominates over time. So one of the things I've encouraged executives to do and marketing executives when they think about this first is to step back from the channel level and define what does it mean to have an effective campaign? If your goal is to reach people right out in your market and get them to change the way they think, the way they feel, or the way they act, what is going to be the most effective campaign to help you do that? And then ask yourself, of course, okay, where are the channels where these people live? Which ones of those channels are channels where we influence the way people think? Which ones give us an opportunity to influence the way they feel? And which ones give us an, the opportunity to influence how they behave or how they act, right? So you think about things like, um, the, you know, lower funnel digital, uh, like paid search advertising. That's great around action. Right. You can use some, you can do some work there to build brand as well as you enter new spaces. That gets harder to measure, but that's where you'll have to figure out how do you how do you separate your measures of um highly incrementality focused ROI on the lower funnel components of of search from the brand metrics you might have on search. Um but I think just to back up, the big question for me is always, okay, what do we really intend to make true? What what does a successful campaign look like? How do we build for something that's powerfully effective and then tune for something that's highly efficient? And I picked that up years ago from a in our job where we had a senior executive, the SVP ended up going on to do great things. Um, and one of the things he would say all the time is we'd come and pitch him some idea for a campaign or a program. And people would say to him, well, we're going to start with a small pilot. And he'd say, well, what do you think the minimum efficient scale is for this program? Well, the minimum's probably, you know, 5x the spend we're talking about. But we think this pilot could maybe give us some indication. And he would always say, look, if you think the minimum is there, just go spend what you've got to spend commit to it because otherwise you're going to waste just as much on the way with a bunch of like, you're going to spend, do 10, $5,000 pilots or one $50,000 pilot. All of those $5,000 pilots, none of them are going to give you any data because you think they're not big enough. The 50 is going to tell you what really is happening. So be willing to spend at a scale that you think is right for what you're actually trying to find out. So I guess those are the two big points I'd say is focus on effectiveness first, tune for efficiency second, and make sure you're going out spending, um, building something 
that's at least as big as you think it needs to be to make the impact? And one thing, this is probably more B2C specific. I did this for a concert I was promoting. Um, it was Facebook. It was taking off. And you, the, the advantage to B2C, we always talk about human marketing, B2B, B2C, they're human marketing. I think there's a lot of the same philosophy that goes into it. I will say B2C, you will see your success cues really quick if they're working. If it's a $30 purchase and I'm netting, you know, a thousand percent ROI in like four days. I've had situations where I saw that on a specific channel. I went to my manager. I was like, this is hot right now. If we're managing budget and we're spreading it across five different platforms, but this one is a thousand percent higher, I would say we need to go all in on this until it tells us no. And there are times in the B2C world where I've found you could go weeks, if not months, of keeping something really hot if you've hit on the right marketing play, the right assets, the right messaging, um, everything's going for you. And that's how I used to try to look at it. I was like, hey, if we have to just have all these channels on to check the box and run them, I would say as a marketer, I would ask my boss to trust me when I felt like we should uncheck the box and then move budgets around to the boxes checked and go for it. Again, this is probably much more B to C, B to B. I need a lot more time to let things digest and, and think about it, look at leads, get it in a CRM, grade our leads, you know, things like that. But that's how I used to go about thinking about it from that side of the business because, you know, not everything's going to perform equal. But again, Chris, what you're saying, knowing what those metrics are, knowing what you're looking for, are you looking for brand presence on certain channels? Are you looking for conversions on others? You know, define what that is, and it could give you the, the steps to go forward. And finally, if you have digital people in place, we talk about the specialist. If the specialists are strong about one thing and you hire them as a senior level specialist for a reason, you have to trust their judgment at certain times. If they get a hunch, I used to get hunches running paid media. If I had it and I was strong about it and I went to my boss, like practically begging for certain things, I would rarely ever do that. But if I did that, I would say you have to trust that they've seen something that they know these levers are going to work and let them run with it. Yeah, it's, you know, you bring up something amazing, which is... It takes a certain amount of courage to invest in a strength, right? To to see, hey, we've we've got some strength here. Now we gotta pull away from other things to really double down on this place where we're seeing strength. And surprisingly, that's hard for folks to do because of the way companies move, because of the momentum that happens. But being able to react with that speed is incredible. And another thing, um, I think. What you just talked about, there's a lesson in there for everybody who's a manager of marketing teams, everybody at the director level in particular, who's being tasked with understanding how the budget's used most efficiently, right? That's that's what a lot of directors get asked about. That's what they get pushed on. You just mentioned, um, you know, somebody coming to you with a great idea. So you going to managers, your management team and saying, look, I've got a hunch that this is going to work. One of the things I've recognized that it's important to do to protect teams, to give you the room to do, to take those, take those risks is to actually make reporting as you go up the, up uh, the levels in the organization, make reporting less granular on purpose. I had a, when I was at Google for a while, one of the things, you know, my director was a great guy, brilliant um, analyst. And he wanted to get into like, well, tell me how you know each program's working. Tell me what works and what doesn't so we know which things to cut and which things to keep. And I told him after a series of difficult conversations, no, I'm not actually going to tell you that. What I'll commit to is an ROI for the overall program. And the reason is if I let you get too deep in each thing, then my whole team will try to, will spend most of their time proving each thing. And eventually they'll stop taking risks on things that don't work. I need to build a portfolio where a certain number of things don't work, but a few things, we knock it out of the park. And if I can build a portfolio like that, we can grow the average over time. 
And so I think you've got, this is why I love talking to you, Andy, because this, this, you've got an instinct for this stuff that I've had to take some time and really think about and ponder. But I think you bring up just a, a you know, a, a brilliant um, note there about the, you know, willingness to go on the journey with employees who have that great hunch and how you might do that. No, definitely. And I think the biggest thing that I would fear if I were running a marketing team is to have a marketing team that's just plain safe. I don't want that. Like I want any, that's why you hire, you know, the right person. You have to know they have the right blend of both. Um, but Chris, I could go on for hours on this. We're, we're at time here. Uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. I think we went to a lot of different avenues today and I hope this was helpful for not only some of the candidates, but also some of the marketers out there that are looking to do different things, whether it's in tech agency, client side, whatever that may be, you know, making those big plays for, for yourself. So Chris, again, thank you very, very much for joining us today. If you want to follow Chris, Chris Malin on LinkedIn, make sure to check him out. And Wasa, of course, as always have some short clips and different things from the, the episode where we'll highlight this. Well, thanks for having me again, and um, I look forward to seeing where the podcast goes. Thank you so much, Chris. And then we'll be back again next week. We will have another fill-in co-host. She is someone that is going to really change the way you think about LinkedIn. So we're going to take a dive into LinkedIn paid marketing and LinkedIn content strategy next week, and I'm extremely excited for that. But till next time, Thank you again for listening to The Making of a Marketer. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.